Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. With over 200,000 locations throughout the U.S. and offering 12,000 different types of batteries, stop into your local Interstate Battery store today and let them help you find the right batteries for your everyday life. XP podcast with your host Steve Fielder and me Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. Welcome back to the Houndsman XP podcast. Today we have a great show scheduled for you. Um, we have got a very special guest from the West. He's my brother from a Navajo mother because we're both Marines. And so we come from the same birthplace of San Diego, California uh, at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot. Uh, so Calvin Redhouse with Res Hounds is on the line with Steve and I. And before we get to... Uh, get to calvin steve how are you today i'm doing great chris just doing great down here in the sauna of sunny florida uh, we always talk about the weather it seems but uh, there isn't much else to talk about in florida in the summertime <laughs> but yeah. uh, really excited today man oh man i've been looking forward to this podcast for a long time and uh, having done a little hunting out in the west uh not for lion, but for bear. I'm really uh, excited about our guest today. Calvin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing great, Calvin. So uh, we're going to jump right into this thing uh, and talk about talk about you and what you're doing out there on the Navajo Nation. And uh, I'm been very excited about it as well. I think you and I kind of struck up a relationship off of social media and um, watching your episodes in carnivore tv and and your involvement there with gary robertson and uh burnham brothers game calls and all that all of that jazz so calvin just uh give us a little bit of background about yourself where mainly where you live and uh, we're going to talk about your outfitting business and some things like that so tell us about calvin redhouse all right. Uh, there's not really that much to tell, you know. Um, <laughs> I grew up on the National Reservation. <laughs> um, I know. I, I know. Up, hey, Calvin. I Calvin. I know you're being humble, yeah. but there's a lot to tell here, and we're gonna we're gonna try to pry it out of you over the next hour or so. <laughs> it's fine with me. Okay. Um, I, like I said, I grew up on the Navajo Reservation. Um, I was born um, in Fort Defiance, uh, Arizona. And uh, raised in uh, the small town called uh, Wheatfields, and it's still in Arizona. So, and then uh, never, you know, my hunting background only extends as far as you know five years back from today. Uh, growing up on the Navajo Reservation, you know, my my family never hunted, you know, um, so I have no 
no uh, knowledge of hunting as far as uh, when I was growing up. Um, came from a, a small family, you know, my my father, mother, uh, older brother, and younger sister, and that's pretty much you know my my background. Um, well, let's. I went to. I'm I'm going to pry a little bit more information out of you here because even though your only uh, your hunting history might only go back about five years. Uh, to a lot of people that may not seem like that long, but you and I have talked about this. How many days a week are you in the mountains with your hounds? On average, about five days a week out of seven days. You know, um, I work, I volunteer to work nights as a security officer. So, which gives, affords me the opportunity to uh, get off early in the morning, um, get back to the house, load up the dogs and uh, head off into the mountains. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're uh, hunting five days a week. It's not like an a one hour excursion into the mountains. You're you're in the mountains every day for for a long period of time every day, looking for tracks and putting miles and miles and miles on that pack of hounds you're running out there. Would that be accurate? Yeah, yeah. That that that's about accurate. Um, I'll I get off of work about seven thirty. Um, I'm usually in the mountains by eight thirty. And uh, from there, depending on you know the the weather or the what, what I'm you know running the dogs for, either lions or bears or bobcats, you know, either free casting or having them rigged from the truck. Um, but majority of the time, I like to free cast, and you know, um, just like any houndsman, I like I like I enjoy the uh, the the side of the dogs working and using their nose, you know. Well, I think the most exciting thing about uh, doing this this podcast with you, Calvin, is is there's another reason why you've only been involved in hunt, hounds for about five years, and that's the background story. You know, podcasts and houndsmen and these stories are are interesting, but we can only talk about dogs so much, which we will certainly do because we want it. That's that's why we come together is is around these hound sports and and hound pursuits, and but the personal background that you have, I think is, is worthy of talking about. And, uh, Steve, you're, you're a veteran, uh, of the air force and, uh, we're all three veterans here. We've all served our country, but Calvin, where have you been prior to that prior to five years ago? What were you doing? Uh, well, back, I, uh, Graduated high school in 2002, you know, did two years of college, and 9-11 happened when I was in high school. I was a senior sitting in um, history class, and when, you know, when the, the Twin Towers was hit, and uh, I went to college here on the uh, Navajo Nation, the community college that uh, we have here for Navajos, and, uh, you know, after that, I just kind of got tired of you know, going to school and doing homework. So I, I uh, decided to join the services, and I joined the United States Marine Corps in 2004. And there I served for 10 years, you know, uh, deployed four times to Afghanistan, one time to Iraq, and um, in 2015... April of 2015 is when, you know, I decided to uh, not not necessarily cut my losses, but you know, I decided to 
you know, return back home to uh, the Navajo Nation with my family. Yeah, it was time for a new adventure. After five deployments, I can only imagine uh, that you needed some needed some home home cooking and uh, see some of that beautiful country on the Navajo Nation for sure. Yes, sir. I mean, the, the Navajo Nation is you know is an awesome place. You know, and, uh, it's it's very big. A lot of people don't understand. You know, they they hear of uh, uh, Native American reservation and they think of um, a lot of the reservations that are around you know, North America as far as, you know, maybe even being a mile wide. But the Navajo Nation is, is is pretty massive, you know. It's bigger than, I think, 10, 10 states like uh, West Virginia, Maryland, Hawaii, Massachusetts, Vermont, uh, Connecticut, Delaware. It's, it's bigger than all of those, all those states, so. And it, it is, I believe, it's 17 million acres is what the Navajo Nation is. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. And how many people live on the Navajo Nation? Well, a um, little bit over 350,000 uh, Navajos um, live here on the Navajo Reservation. And that, you know, majority of the reservation is on Arizona, but it extends into um, the southern, southeastern corner of Utah, and then the northwestern corner of uh, New Mexico as well. So it expands into those three states. Yeah, and, and talk to us a little bit about about hunting on the Navajo Nation, and um, talk to us about your government and and how you're set up there, and. Because I think that's unique. I did not realize until we started talking and I started doing some research that the Navajo Nation is actually that. You've got your own government set up and everything. So so talk to us a little bit about that, Calvin. Okay, yeah. Um, the Navajo Nation, you know, we're a sovereign nation. And uh, we're just like the uh, federal government. We have a, you know, executive, legislative, and traditional government, which consists of, like, uh, 88 council delegates that – you know, represent the Navajo Nation, and um, the in 1868, the it was actually called the Navajo Indian Reservation, and then in 1969 is when they changed it to the Navajo Nation. You know, they changed the name, so uh, that that's pretty much the background of that. You know, um, and it's pretty much ran just like the federal government is as far as, you know, our government system. <clears throat> so your, your hunting seasons are actually set by the governing body for the Navajo Nation. So they're not set by Arizona, New Mexico, or Utah. It's actually set within within your own governing body there on the on the reservation, correct? Yeah, we have, we have our own uh, fish and wildlife, um, and they, they set the dates for us. And uh, the actual the Navajo Nation proclamation is actually out right now. And the deadline for, you know, that is coming up close. Uh, uh, it ends next next week, I believe, on June 7th is when the deadline for all application goes. Um, and it's open to, you know, it, it's open to everybody. You know, the Navajo Nation isn't a closed reservation. Um, you Anybody can uh, apply either um online but um via mail 
and uh, or walking into the uh, Fish and Wildlife Game Office in uh, Window Rock, Arizona, which happens to be the capital of the Navajo Nation. Yeah, I think that I think that's really interesting because I know that I was I knew that big chunk of property set out there, but I was always under the impression that you had to be Navajo in in order to go there and hunt. But after reading the regulations and talking to you. I mean, what a what an awesome place! And Steve, I, I, you're sending me a message here, and I know you got a question for Calvin, so jump in. <laughs> Calvin, uh, when you speak <laughs> when you speak about the Navajo Nation, I believe that probably uh, your ancestors or individuals, perhaps in your family, may have been involved with uh, what we refer to as the Code Talkers in World War II. Do you know anything about that, or is that in your history? Uh, as far as my history, you know, as far as my family, I'm the first generation to go into the armed services. You know, I um, see. The code talkers, yes, they did play a significant role in the, you know the the turning events in World War II, as far as the as far as the island hopping campaign. But as far as my extent as relations to the Navajo Code Talkers around here, no, it, it doesn't. That's not. Uh, that doesn't really uh, run in my in my uh, my bloodline, I guess you could say. But as far as you know, uh, being a devil dog, you know, of course we're all brothers and we're families, and and in that source, yeah, I'm related to them. But as far as you know, <laughs> there you go. Bloodlines, no. Oh, that's it's just interesting to me. I I've had the privilege to hunt and to fish on some reservations, uh, uh, Cherokee down in North Carolina, and uh, the White Mountain Apache out in in northeast or I guess that's just eastern Arizona, and um, but I have not had the privilege yet of hunting on the Navajo Nation, and I s- certainly hope that's in my future. I, I I hope so. You know, it's not it's not too bad. You know, um, the only requirements that you know that is is uh, that you need is one submit your application. Two um, is uh, if you're born before 1970, you're not required to have a hunter education card. But if you're born after 1970, you have to have a hunter education card from any state. And uh, that's got to be on you at all times with, of course, your permit uh, when you're hunting. And that right there gives you access to the entire 17 million acres to hunt on. Well, depending on what, you know, what um, what unit you draw, you know, like um, we have 16 units on the Navajo Reservation that the Navajo Reservation is divided into 16 hunting units. You know, um, mountain lions, when you're hunting mountain lions, you're, the entire reservation is open up to you. So you're allowed to hunt wherever you want from mountain lions. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about being born before 1970, Calvin, because I'm so old, most states just give me a license. Here in Florida, <laughs> here in Florida, I don't even have to have one. I can just show my uh my driver's license yeah, yeah. um we've got we could do it that, you know 
or, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just saying we could do a whole podcast just on the, on the government and the structure of the Navajo Nation. I think what we're going to have to do is I know that you've got a, uh, some family that works for Fish and Game. I would really like to uh, talk to them sometime about, about the Navajo Nation. I, of course, my background, 28 years as a, as a fish and wildlife officer in Indiana, a game warden in Indiana. Uh, I would really like to know some more information about that. But uh, I want to kind of jump back to the, the, the military heritage just for a second before we move on, Calvin, because is, is the Marine Corps um, – it seems like a lot of Navajos have made their mark in the United States Marine Corps. Is it? Does it seem that it's a cultural thing there, where most of the most of the people from the Navajo Nation enlist in the Marine Corps? Is it pretty evenly distributed uh, to all armed services? Because you have a rich heritage on uh, from your from your people with military service to our country. Yeah, um, I think it's right now. You know, back in the day, it was a little bit. You know towards the the United States Marine Corps, but now in today's generation, it's pretty much even across the, all entire the entire services. You know, um, I know a couple of people that you know um, from the hunting community. They're they're uh, either their kids or their grandkids all went to either the Navy or. A matter of fact, I have uh, my wife's nephew is at boot camp right now for the air force and he graduates next month on the 16th i believe is when he graduates from the air force and um they're headed to san antonio san antonio to see uh his graduation so that's where you know my uh mother and father-in-law and some of them are headed next next month yeah i remember those good old days at lackland air force base (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) yeah it sounds like the uh the navajo nation is uh, the the generations coming up are smarter because they're going to places like the air force and uh the navy (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, people ask me you know hey what um what services do you think is best i'm like well it depends on what you want you know if you want nice housing and you know be able to to live in you know decent barracks and not three hots in a cot they'd stay away from the marine corps and go join either the navy or the the air force you know you'll pretty much stay off of a cot i don't know what it is but uh, stephen pressfield wrote a book called warrior ethos and he talks about how marines enjoy uh the hardships because it gives them something to talk about and uh I guess we're just gluttons for punishment. I don't know, but I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that uh, some of the younger generation are are wising up a little bit and and hitting some of these other branches as well. <laughs> uh, I think we I think we really wanted to focus on uh, your military service and things like that, and and I just think it's so important that we we pay tribute to our our veterans out there. And I know there are several other military veterans that are houndsmen and your story is pretty unique, Calvin, um, growing up on the Navajo nation, doing your time in the Marine Corps and then coming back. So, um, Steve, you had several questions about, about different hunting stuff. And the thing that brought us together is actually Calvin's outfitting business 
And you want to describe that? Give us the name of it, Calvin. Tell us what, what you're doing out there. Well, uh, I got to oh, give you a little history on what, how I got started. How, how about that? Let me, yes, let me, let me that's start exa- off with that. exactly what we're looking for. So back in 2000, the end of 2014, I was uh, in Lejeune, and, uh, you know, I was making my final transition to leave the, leave the Marine Corps. And uh, my brother-in-law, who works for Fish and Game here on the Navajo Reservation, he uh, was, you know, um, he was sending me pictures of um, mountain lions that they had, you know, harvested or, you know, taken. And that got me interested into hound hunting. You know, he was telling me, he would show me pictures of, you know, him and his hound dogs and, uh, him going out on depredation calls for it, you know, and that got me, you know, I was like, wow, that's, 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 that's an adventure. That's something I would want to do after I get out of the Marine Corps. So, um, I got a hold of a, a good friend of mine who was one of my, uh, one of my Marines. Uh, he was a corporal at the time and, uh, he introduced me to, um, Chris, Christopher Mercer there in, uh, North Carolina. And he was the guy that I got my walker walker dogs my tree walker dogs from there in north carolina and i still have them today you know you see you see you see them in a lot of the videos mm-hmm. the only walker dogs that i do have and uh so i met i met mr uh, mercer there and right off of lejeune and uh he was i uh, you know he was one of those old houses that didn't really just he wasn't in it for the money you know he uh he specifically told you know um, the uh, the marine that introduced us. You know, hey, before I sell before I sell that guy dog, you know, I want to meet him. I want to talk to him. I want to see what this guy's about before sure. you know I let I let these dogs go. So I spent um, about two weekends with him. You know, just talking dogs and what I was you know what my plans were for the dogs that I wanted to buy for him, and that got him interested in it and. Um, that's how I was able to, you know, get two, two walkers from him. And, uh, so you take them back, you take them back West with you. You take them back to Arizona with you. Uh, how'd you get them there? How did you get your dogs there? Did you drive home? Yeah. Uh, we left Lejeune in April and, uh, me, my wife, uh, my son at the time. And we flew out my mother-in-law just to take a drive. So we packed, I packed all of them up. And uh, put a U-Haul trailer at the end of the, you know, pulled pulled it on the truck, and uh, with the two puppies in the back in a small kennel, <laughs> and we drove across country. We drove down to uh, Steve's part of the woods. We you know we went from North Carolina, South Carolina, into Florida, and all the way back across because uh, we left uh, towards the tail end of uh, winter, so we didn't want to drive, you know, through the storm. So we went down south and came back all the way back to Arizona. Um, we made it like a five day trip, which was, you know, the logistical portion of, you know, of it was, uh, kind of painful because we had two puppies, you know, we had, and at the same time we were trying to enjoy our little vacation trip back home. So we, you know, we stopped in, um, South Carolina, uh, we stayed there for the night and we had to, you know, make sure we, we, uh, got motels or hotels right. that, you know, accommodated pets. With five with five so, deployments to to 
Afghanistan and Iraq, I can't imagine a five-day trip across country was much uphill climbing for you. So, I mean, you talk about a logistical nightmare. I, that always did amaze me how we how we mobilize a force like that. And um, yeah, that's amazing. That's an amazing story. Moving everything back. So you got back to the reservation, and uh, how'd you get started? What'd you start doing well, first? Uh, well, I got back and then uh, tried to uh, locate uh, locate somewhere to work, and you know. Um, employment on the reservation is not is not too good you know it's um it's mainly about the white you know it's it's kind of it's uh kind of like a first come first serve and there's not a lot of places you know we live in a very rural area so uh employment was kind of hard so um my brother-in-law like i said is in uh fish and wildlife and, and uh, he was doing a lot of hunting so what did i do I took the two puppies and just threw them in with his pack and just kept on going with some there, you know. Uh, from there, my brother-in-law, Titus Sandal, who's the conservation officer here, or game warden, depending on, you know, where you are and the region you're in, but however you call them. Right. And uh, that's how I got started. And he, from there, he became my mentor. You know, um, well, Calvin, let me ask you this real quick. What was, yeah. do you know the background of those Walker dogs, those puppies that you got? What breeding were yeah. they? They were, the generation goes back to the Nance line, but the, the mother and father were off of, um, Boss Hoss line. And, uh, that's where they came from. They, from head. what line again? I, I missed that. The boss hoss. Okay, but they went back to the Nance bred dogs. Yes, they went. They 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 okay. eventually went back to were split apart from the original Nance line. I got you. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, I just uh, and then employment came along with the uh, community community college here that we have on the reservation as a security officer. So, uh, you know, I jumped on board over there and uh we we uh i used that that at night and i uh, worked work at night during the day i started you know working with the dogs going out you know hunting and um my brother-in-law is the one that introduced me to all this hunting you know deer well elk. how did your brother-in-law get started in hounds and what type of hounds did he have <laughs> oh man i mean that's that's I can I can give you a a brief story I guess of him, and uh, he's a he's a game warden slash conservation officer depending on how. Oh no, not him. another not another game warden in this story. Yes, sir. So <laughs> he uh, <laughs> so he got started um, because of he had uh, lots of depredation calls, and he didn't have dogs at the time, so he was forced to, you know, sit in corrals late at night with a, you know, a flashlight and, uh, with, and his partners, they would sit in the, in a corral and wait for that, either that mountain lion or that bear to come back. And they pretty much, you know, put a spotlight on that animal and then ensure that, you know, make sure that that animal was there to, you know, hurt the livestock. And then they would, you know, put that animal down. And so after a couple of, uh, dep more depredation calls that they had to go on, you know, they just got to, he was telling me that they had to have been an easier way to, you know, 
to do this to where he stays safe and he's not, you know, sitting in the dark just waiting for, you know, one of these big <laughs> pred- game predators to come back. So. Yeah, being lion bait and bear um, bait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. So. Did he did he rub so, any yeah. did he rub any fish oil or anything on himself, hoping that those? <laughs> <laughs> maybe we can maybe maybe uh. Maybe I can introduce you to him on, on uh, social media, and you can you know talk him on to you know uh, doing one of these interviews on your podcast here on for the Navajo Nation as far as you know the the game warden side of the aspects on the reservation. So <laughs> I love to um, love to talk so to this yeah, guy. So he, and so he his partner at the time got bought some dogs off of a gentleman out in Utah and that's how they kind of got started. I'm not too sure, you know, of the bloodlines or whatnot or any of that, but it was mainly, you know, they just got puppies and what they do, they really didn't have, um, they didn't have the GPS collars. And so what they did was just, you know, recast the dogs without no collars and, spent countless hours, you know, yelling, screaming for the dogs, and the dogs, you know, went silent on them. They, you know, screamed and screamed. So <laughs> eventually, they he bought collars and uh, and kept on going from there. When I got back, he had my brother-in-law had about I think it was about six hound dogs, and I'm not too sure about the bloodlines or any of that. They were all mixed. Um, majority of the the best dog that he started off with was a black and tan named Jibs. And from there he bred her to bred him to some other some to another dog named Lucy who was like a was a blue tick walker cross, I think it was, mm-hmm. and that's how his line came out. And it, and you know, uh for a lot of big games since they really don't they're not big on for me anyways what i see is they're not big on bloodlines or paper trails i mean i don't know like i said that's just that's just how it is majority of the time out this way well so, i think calvin what uh, yeah calvin i think what you're saying there is pretty typical across the country uh you know as i meet big game hunters in my own experience in west virginia hunting with my dad most of our friends hunted crossbred dogs uh, I've done uh, articles for Bear Hunting Magazine about legendary bear, bear dogs, and many of those dogs have been crossbred. So, and when you mention the black and tan crossed with the walker or the blue tick, that seems to be a pretty good combination and uh, typical across the country. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's uh, a lot of really good dry ground dogs here in Arizona that I know of. You know, they they're mixed with just about everything. Um, just about every type of town dog you can think of, you know? Um, and then now what, what I kind of got into is, um, I met up with Gary and I got some of his line. Let's, let's talk uh, about that a little bit, Calvin, because that's where, that's where we wanted to go. I mean, you ended up partnering or working for i'm not even sure how to describe your relationship with gary he's described it uh, very well in a previous podcast but but how did you get hooked up with gary robertson from carnivore tv let's talk about that a little bit well um i 
think it was that first year in 2015, my brother-in-law was was telling me, he's like, hey, you want to go see some elk? And I was like, yeah, I want to, you know, I was like, okay, let's go, let's go see some elk. You know, I've never really seen elk on the Navajo reservation. So he was like, yeah, I know, I know a field that they like to go into this time of the year. So we went out. And we drove some back roads. You know, what time? Back you, what the, time would the, year that would this have been, Calvin? This would have been right like, in the fall season, maybe in September, August, okay. September time frame. Yep. And um, we're driving way back in there. We had a couple of couple of hound dogs with us, um, Rico, uh, Nas. We had them with us, and uh, saw this little. This little silver ranger, and then and Titus goes, "Hey, that's that's Gary." He goes, "I know this guy. He's a, he he has a TV show. He's a TV show named Carnivore TV." And right. Yep. That was the first time I seen Gary. Was way in the back roads on the western part of the reservation, way back in there, and they were trailing the mountain line. And uh, I kind of stayed back, and Titus went up there and talked to them and whatnot. So we just left them alone. Were they uh, were they fil- were they filming camera. at the time? Were they filming an episode at the time, Calvin? Or yeah, they were, they were. They were. Any anytime Gary comes onto the to the reservation, they always film an episode either of you know trailing cats or uh, coyote calling calling coyotes. So uh, they were trailing a cat, and uh, they were. I guess the cat had done you know several several loops on them, and they had made a loops a couple of times. So they were there trying to figure that out and then we push forward to so your involvement your involvement kind of took off from there with gary um yeah i know in the episode of of the tv show he he found out your background several days later you know he uh yeah titus asked me again and he goes hey you want to go you want to go uh take gary out to go uh coyote calling so we met up with gary at the local gas station here and we we started going out from there and, um, you know, um, coyote calling and whatnot. And then we introduced, you know, each other and uh, I told him about my background. And then I was, I had a small DSD, DSLR camera yeah. at the time. And that's what I was used to film with. And, uh, Gary had seen a lot of the footage that I had taken. And, uh, he's like, you know what, let me, let me get you, let me get you a camera. And then you can film for us, and then we'll go from there. And and you, okay. you you had done you had taken a photography and video class. Is that correct? Do I did I understand that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. When I um when I got out of the Marine Corps, I went back to college for a little bit, and I took some classes for uh, photography there at the community college, and the, just to better understand you know the camera and the aspects of you know, how to shoot. And I took some film, uh, film appreciation classes, which, you know, introduced me to how to properly, use, properly use lighting, uh, do interviews and mm-hmm. the different parts, the different reasons, the different reasons why you shoot things at certain angles, you know? So that's how, that's what, that's what the classes that I took. And that's how I kind of got really big into filming. And then of course I wanted to film these hunts because, uh, just the, just to film these hunts because electronics and hunting kind of, I kind of like those two things. So I right. made sure. And if anybody them together, that's what I did. If anybody follows you on Instagram or Facebook, 
the the quality of your photos is outstanding. That's the first thing I noticed about about some of the the shots that you take is you can tell there's some creativity and some cinematography that goes along with with that stuff and the way you set your photos up. I can tell that you you take a lot of pride in in the way you photograph animals and and wildlife and also hunting situations. So Gary Gary recognized some of that talent and knew that knew that you would be available there in the Navajo Nation to to help him when he's out there. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so right now I'm working with them full time. Um, they're I'm one of the cameramen here. So all my hunts, um, all the stuff that I do here, all the filming and shooting that I do here, uh, they they come out and either that or I put it on the hard drive and I mail it back to them. They scrub and look at all the footage and then they you know, put together two or three shows and then we do an interview sitting down with one another and uh, refilm and talk about all these shows. Matter of fact, Mr. Mr. Gary Robinson is out here right now. I'm going to meet up with him later on this evening. Um, they're out coyote calling right now. So um, we're going to be, you know, putting together this coming season's episode um, today, tomorrow, and I believe Friday. So we're going to be out here shooting the next couple of days. So nice. it's be pretty interesting. Steve, you got something? Well, I've been particularly interested in uh, your photography. Uh, yeah. You know, when I was in the Air Force, I, like a lot of GIs and got to Japan, I picked up a 35-millimeter camera because they were inexpensive, and you could buy the good ones over there for not many bucks. And I went through some courses while I was there and so forth. And photography really helped me throughout the years of my career, particularly involving dogs and working with dog magazines. But the cinematography and shooting video and something is is really uh, kind of eluded me and something I'm interested in. I've got a question for you. Maybe our listeners would find interesting. If a guy wants to get out and shoot some decent video of his hunts with his hounds – and I realize that that drones are popular now and so forth. Uh, what what's the in, initial investment? How can a guy get just a grassroots setup to go out and shoot some of the things? I, and I realize, as a photographer, the, the eye is so important. You've got to see the shot. You've got to know what you're doing, and obviously you do. But um, just for our listeners, what what would a basic setup? to get some decent uh, memories of our hunts cost a guy? Um, it all depends on, you know, uh, it pretty much depends on your, um, how do you say this? It all depends on your income, how much you're willing to spend, you know. Um, right now, they've, they've come up with some amazing, amazing uh, cameras, action cameras. You know, the GoPros have just, incredible stabilization now and that'd be one to use for you know as a beginning uh beginning uh hunter to start filming his hunt you know gopros are pretty popular and they're fairly inexpensive you know they're not too bad and then the you know, dslr cameras at the same time they're they're pretty 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 nice too you know as long as you know i shoot a um, Nikon myself, and I have a 
just the stock, just the stock lenses on them, which is those 80 to 200 millimeter lens on it, just so I can zoom in as close as I can without, you know, breaking the bank. And that's, that's, that's what I use. And of course the, the camera that, you know, Gary, uh, furnished for me to, to use for, to shoot on carnivore TV, of course, is another one that I use, but for a beginning individual to start filming their hunt, I'd probably recommend like a GoPro and then also, uh, a cheap camera. You know, you can, any of the cameras from the DSLRs from Walmart would do the trick because a lot of them right now you can shoot film and at the same time take great, great pictures with them. And then it's just knowing your camera after that, you know, there's, you can shoot, um, raw footage, which is the best way to shoot because you can edit those and the information that put back on those, the pictures is just incredible. I agree. I agree. Good information for sure. Well, Steve, you've certainly you've certainly taken your share of of high quality photos over the years, and and Calvin, I don't know if you realize this or not, but but uh, Steve actually has years and years and years of photographs that are cataloged, and and uh, if you ever need a picture of of a dog in in your uh, any of your dog's pedigrees, you you would want to reach out to Steve because he's probably got a picture of it somewhere because he's talked to those people. So, uh, Steve, did you want to? Did you have anything else on photography or? Well, no. I uh, actually, because of our relationship over the years with the folks at Garmin, I uh, uh, when I bought an action camera similar to the GoPro, I bought the Garmin Verb. And I've been able to get some good good uh, footage on that and uh, and all, but I realized that GoPro they were the first in, in the market and and certainly the most popular. But that's good advice, uh, Calvin. And I, you know, I I hope to uh, get a, a better grade video camera as we progress along this podcasting trail. And uh, I'll be talking to you later on about. Uh, some tips and so forth, but do you use drones at all in your photography? Um, no, I don't. Um, I eventually, you know, I want to go that route and, uh, you know, just to introduce more, more of that whole, you know, aspect of cinematography and, and drones is the way to go to introduce that, you know, nice shot of, you know, telling a better storyline and the footage that I, that I try to, you know, produce as far as, you know, on Facebook and whatnot, the little video clips, the 6 to 10 to 15-minute video clips that I put together of each hunt that I go on. Uh, you're going to see uh, Gary here in a little bit. You might want to might want drop that on him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> I'll do that, you know. Um, I get my dog year round here um you know lion season here goes from october 1st to june 31st and that takes up a huge chunk of the year and then of course you know i've got the spring bear hunt that starts 11 may 11th to june 2nd you know and yeah. then i go back to lion season all the way to june 31st yeah so and then from so I've got I've got a question and kind of a progression here. We're gonna yeah. I, I want to kind of 
work through here, Calvin. So you started shooting footage for Gary for Carnivore. How did Res Hounds, how did that come about? I mean, how did you get in the outfitting business? How did you, you know, what pushed you into that? Which one came first? It's kind of a chicken or the egg thing here. Which one was the, which one was first, and and how did Res Hounds develop? Well, Res Hounds kind of developed right about the same, a little bit after I met up with Gary. Uh-huh. You know, um, I I started running the dogs with my brother in law, and uh, it took me two years before I could, you know, build up the confidence to 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 be um, to think, you know, hey, I think I can do this. I, I think I can do this to to not make a living, but to you know um, bring in some extra bill. money to 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 pay the to, yeah to pay the, <laughs> the the food bill for dogs the the, the gas the wear and tear on the truck right. and uh, my brother in law is actually the one that you know pushed me on it. He's like, hey, you know, you could be a guide and do this and get paid for it. I mean, you're going to do it anyway. You're you're having fun doing it anyway. You might as well get see if you can get a couple of clients and get paid for it. And then that money you can, you know, put back towards the dogs. So I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll think about that. So two years went by until the third year, you know, I finally decided, you know, I think I can do this. So I put together the logo. I put together, you know, I started putting all this footage on, on, uh, online through uh, Facebook and then, you know, through, through that is how I started somewhat getting popular. And of course it started giving, getting even more popular when Gary, you know, started introducing me on carnivore TV and, and uh, putting my name out there as far as, you know, either cameraman or um, last season we did, I think it's three shows together with me in it. And that from there it just kind of expanded and, you know, social media is huge these days and trying to get your name out there. So, that's, that's how it happened. Um, we uh, were able to, through the Navajo, through uh, Fish and Wildlife, we were able to you know meet the guys from Bone Collectors and do a couple of shows with Bone Collectors. And then they recommended, um, I don't know if you know the other show, Interlock Out There. Um, mm-hmm. So we did, we did a TV show with them again. And then just this past, winter season bone collectors came back out and we were able to do another show with them so so, so you're in a I'm, way i'm you know, looking at your big go ahead calvin finish that up i'm sorry oh yeah in a way that that's how you know that the snowball effect started you know it started with this little idea of me being just a, a small time guide here on the reservation to run hounds and then um Gary came and evolved, and the snowball got a little bit bigger. And uh, doing the TV shows with these other, with these other, um, with these other people, you know, it just it's just snowballing bigger and bigger. And now, you know, I'm trying to. I started working with uh, Sportsman for Heroes, doing a, a volunteering my time for veteran veterans and taking them out hunting and stuff like that. So it, it's it's a process. I stay busy. Um, I don't think there's ever a time that, you know, I'm not busy because, uh, like my wife says, says to me all the time, she gets mad, your kids, you need to go, you need to go quiet down your kids again. You spend more time with your kids and my kids, she's referring to the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I'm looking at your I'm looking at yeah. your Facebook profile right now, and you've got almost you got four thousand eight hundred and fifty six followers. So you're doing something right out there with Res Hounds. Um, typically, if somebody wants to come and hunt with you, Calvin, um, I always wanted to ask an outfitter this question: What makes a good client? You you get a guy call you says, "Hey, I want to come and hunt with you. I'm I'm willing to pay you to take me hunting," and then what expectation do you have of your clients to come and hunt with you on the Navajo Nation? Talk to us about the, the conditions you're hunting in and, and things like that, too. But what what's your expectation of a guy that's going to come and hunt with you? It's basically to be open-minded. You know, he's not going to get the big, you know, I, I reassure them that, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll definitely see either – depending on what you, uh, you know, you hire me for either the bear or bears or mountain lions, you'll definitely see animals, but I can't, you know, I tell them you have to be open-minded and you can't expect to have, you know, cats as big as, you know, in British Columbia, you know, 200 plus cats. That's a rare, rare, rare sight to see, especially down here in Arizona, you know, even cats, further in utah and especially in montana are definitely bigger than cats here in arizona um on average maybe a, a, an average tom may weigh 100 and 100 between 115 and maybe 135 on average here anything bigger than that is is extremely rare you know and i and i, and I make sure that they understand that you know it's, if they want that they got to go you know looking further north where you know those these cats have you know evolved to be bigger than that's that's just a standard biological thing you know you go you go farther up into the into the as you increase in in latitude going up up the map there it's true with everything deer are bigger uh predators are bigger everything is bigger in the north and uh the uh the terrain you're hunting in down there is very challenging and what happens when a hunter shows up and is not prepared to to put that many miles in? Because you're putting miles and miles and miles on these dogs and on on yourself. So what can a hunter do to prepare himself? He's going to pay you money, and you're going to do your part. What do they need to do to do their part to be able to enjoy this hunt? They need to get on a stair ma- Stairmaster, put a pack on, start you know training for the marathon, what they got to do. Well, first thing you know, I'd, I'd make sure to, and uh, make sure that they're aware of the elevation. Starting elevation where I live is seven thousand feet. At the top of the mountain, you could be right around ninety-five, between nine and ninety-five hundred feet in elevation. And at times, if we can't make it up to the top of the mountain, and those dogs trail from the base all the way to the top, we're going for an extremely long walk. And, yeah. you know, I just keep telling them, you know, you have to walk, you have to exercise, you have to make sure that, you know, you you condition your body to ensure that you can get up there. And, uh, you know, I just tell them, you know, hey, if that, if that animal's tree, those dogs will keep it in a tree. It's up to us to make sure that we get up there. You know, if it's us taking our time, we're going to take our time because those dogs will keep it up there. But we just need to make sure, you need to make sure that you're in somewhat of decent shape, better than you are right now, 
to make sure that we can get up there. I'm going to, you know, I tell them, you know, I'm going to make sure that I do my best to get us as close as possible. But, you know, the longest that I've walked is, I believe, a mile and a half to get to the dog. Yeah. And that was with like a foot of, a foot and a half of snow. <laughs> Whole new, and people, people don't that, people that, don't think about snow in northern Arizona, but watching your videos and stuff, mm-hmm. that's that's what you're hunting in. Tell us a little bit about the res hounds, the hounds of res hounds. I mean, what are you looking for in your dogs, and what what kind of unique uh, terrain are they hunting in, and what special characteristics do they have to have in order to be able to to be successful in in where you're uh, hunting there in the Navajo Nation? Well, the main the main thing is endurance and the ability to use their nose. Like I tell a lot of people, I'm not I'm not colorblind. You know, I'm interested in that dog's nose, not the not the not the color of the dog. The color of the dog is just a plus. If he looks nice and uses his nose, hey, that that's a win for me. But if he if he's the ugliest dog hound dog you've ever seen in the world, but his nose works really good, he's gonna stay with me. You know, and I'm not, I'm not too picky on bloodlines. If it works, it works. Um, mainly, I like to keep the dog starting from pups between now until they're about two years old. And from a year and a half to two years old is when I like to, you know, make sure that I see some sort of, you know, progression in the right direction as far as them, you know, grinding out a track and listening and, you know, just be obedient. Um, I run at least, right now I'm running nine nine dogs. And if I can't control those nine dogs, it's going to be a nightmare for me. Just like having them break from the tree, I need to make sure that, you know, if I tell them break from the tree, they're going to leave that tree and follow me because I'm not going to carry, you know, four or five leads to, to tie them all up and drag them off of that tree while that bear is still in the air or that lion's still in the air i'm not going to do that you know I, I need to make sure that they they listen to me and that they 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 uh they all get along at the same time you know well calvin uh which do you prefer to hunt do you prefer bear to lion or vice versa uh and do you uh think that it, it uh requires a different type or style of dog for each um yeah, um, I prefer to chase cats all day, any day. Um, if I see, if I'm hunting for bears and I see a mountain lion track and I got a tag in my pocket, that that bear tag's gonna take a back seat and I'm gonna go after that that cat track. Um, I I enjoy chasing cats a lot better. It's more to me, my opinion, it's more of a challenge, not only for me but for the dogs as well because. They have to grind out that track, you know. So mountain lions don't leave a lot of scent. They leave, depending on the pad, you know, maybe anywhere between four to six inches in diameter of scent on the ground. And that's pretty much it. So those dogs have to work for it. My ultimate goal is to be a dry land cat hunter. That's, that's my ultimate goal as far as what I'm, I'm trying to work towards, you know, and granted I'm new to the game. I'm, I'm barely, I've only been doing this for five years and I still have so much to learn 
and I'm nowhere near I I'm nowhere near to say that I'm the best or I near nor will I ever say I'm the best, you know. With dogs you're always learning, you're they're always constantly teaching you something. You know, if you've learned everything that you need to learn then it's just not fun no more. So have you read some of the books about the old lion hunters in the West, like the Lee brothers or uh, uh, the slash ranch hounds, uh, any of those, uh, writers that have, have written so many terrific stories about, uh, lion hunting with hounds on dry ground. Have you read any of those Calvin? No, I, to be honest with you, no, I haven't. Um, usually I spend a lot of my time with the dogs or sure. in the mountains. I really don't, right. I really don't. <laughs> and then well, when I get home either I get, I get, I get into the shower and go to work or I just go straight to bed. So Sure. Well, the reason I bring that up is, you know, as I listen to you talk, I, I, it, it conjures up visions of those stories that I've uh, read. And, uh, and I have had the opportunity to hunt in the West. And uh, uh, early on, you mentioned the fact that the cats are smaller uh, the lions are smaller there maybe than in the northwest, uh, northern part of the country. When I hunted the White Mountain Apache <clears throat> around uh, old Pine Tops and that area of Arizona, um, the genetics there of the bears produce large skulls <clears throat> and large feet and so forth, but not necessarily large animals. Uh, is that typical in the in the uh, area you hunt? Do these lions score pretty good in uh, Boone and Crockett, or, or are they just overall smaller? Um, it depends. The last, like, just like um, this past winter, that client that I had from uh, Missouri, his cat, the green score, scored just shy of the, you know, the one of the all-time records by, like, I think, a quarter of an inch, I believe it was. That was the great yeah. score. Yeah. And it, it all varies, though. You know, I mean, if we have a good, a good, a good winter season and a good, you know, spring season as far as water, you know, the antlers grow and you get bigger bucks. It's the same right. thing with cats. You know, if there's more game, they get the the bigger they get. And it it, it all depends on everything out and you know, everything runs in a circle. So uh, the more game we have, the bigger the cats are. But the problem with that is that the less, the less deer and the less elk we have. So there's just got to be that equal equilibrium on all parts. Well, it's no doubt a tough place for any type of wildlife to eke out living down, down there in the, in the Southwest, uh, whether you're a deer, a peccary or a mountain lion. I mean, you, you got to earn every, every meal and every breath that's for sure especially when you have uh guys like you out there chasing them around and, and putting them in trees so calvin um where can people find you on where can people find you on on social media and do you have a website yeah um website no uh social media is uh red hounds on facebook and then on Instagram, it is uh, redhound16. Is that's on my Instagram that I use your name. So those are all two that I really, you know, go off of. And then of course, if anybody wants to, you know, talk, I'm always open to 
you know, um, Messenger or on Facebook has my number as well. And you can text me at any time and I'm more than happy. Like I said, I work nights, so sometimes I'm up at work. I'm, I'm usually messaging somebody, you know, talking about hounds at like two, three o'clock in the morning. So. <laughs> yeah, and you've so always it's, you've it's always funny. jumped right right in and messaged me back every time. So I know the response is quick. And uh, before we uh, wrap it up, there are a couple other things that we wanted to talk about real quick. And uh, Steve, I'm gonna let you let you take over on this part of it and and uh, start wrapping it up. Well, uh, Calvin, talking about your res hounds, and I, I want to make sure that our listeners understand that that's R E Z, uh, and I assume that's uh, uh, short for reservation. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, sir. Right. Okay. Um, I just wonder about your hounds. Do you have a strict breeding program that you follow, or do you always go outside? for pups to re- replenish your pack uh, what are your you know what do you do about keeping this line of dogs going well um right now to be honest with you all the males are the females that we had we either had fixed or you know um they they um just didn't make it through the season so um lately what i've been doing is you know going out going out and outsourcing you know i don't really um like i said i'm not particular on any breed of hounds um so i'll look into somebody that's you know got hounds for sale and i'll go that route and if that bloodline don't work and that bloodline don't work if it works it stays and i'm not you know i don't i don't praise any one bloodline i don't that's not me and that's not who i am i'm i'm just into, in it for the nose that works stays well, uh, well, how much like research? Right. How much research do you do, or you just pretty much rely on trial and error? I mean, do you try to seek out a dog that's producing puppies with a cold nose, or do you say, "Well, I'll try this and see how it works out"? Pretty much, it's it's that's that's kind of how I work because I'm not too big on the whole, you know. Um, pedigree portion of it you know yeah there is are people that have decent you know or decent or really good dry dry land dogs but you know they um sometimes they just want an arm and a leg for those dogs or even those pups and i'm not really too big on you know purchasing pups that are you know in the thousands of dollars to to get there you know if i'll get eventually it's just on my terms and take my time and I'll uh, rather take a pup that's maybe two, three, three hundred dollars, and work with that dog for the next two years and see what it, you know, see see the outcome. You may, in my opinion, this is just my opinion. You may have the best, two best dryland dogs in the world, but there's no guarantee to say that all of the, the pups out of that litter are going to be just as good. So I mean. <clears throat> Well, what's the basic protocol you put a puppy through, Calvin, to get him started where you can introduce him into the pack and he he be a successful lion or bear dog? Well, I do. I'll start off with taking that pup with me on every on every um, every adventure that we go on to. 
you know, starting at um, about, I don't know, the 12-week mark. And dog's tree, I'll take that pup with me, and then that pup will follow me to the tree. And it'll just stay the entire time. It'll just be with me, to walk either walk into the tree or when I free cast all the dogs, I'll let that pup, you know, trail and follow all the rest of the dogs and just learn off of the older ones. Well, Calvin, you know, out here in the east, we have these go yonder coon dogs that some guys typically, you know, they turn them loose at the truck and they have no hope of ever putting their hands on that dog until they pull it off of a tree. You, on the other hand, are saying that you take this pack of dogs, six or more, and you have them under voice command and uh, they are uh, and you can call them off the tree you don't basically use leashes, I I would suppose, unless maybe you do tie them at the tree. How do you instill that kind of handle in your hounds? It's just straight discipline, you know. You're the you're the leader of the you're the leader of the pack, and they need to know that the um, what you say goes. And from the first from the start, you know, it, it was like that. It was hard to take the dogs off of the tree. And eventually, you know, me working with them and toning them and telling them, you know, break. As soon as I, you know, start off with, like, toning them, tell them and then tell them break. And then they would slowly learn and learn. And then, of course, you got some of the harder, hard-headed ones that wouldn't break. <laughs> and then you get the shock with that one. So, and then they would learn, you know, a hey, break means come to me and leave the tree alone. And eventually, you know, I got enough of the, I got the finished dogs. To, to do what I wanted and then the younger pups as I introduced to them you know when I tell them break and the finished dogs would come to me the, the pups would you know break from the tree too because they're like oh okay well these guys are going with that command I'm going to go follow them so it's kind of like a, a monkey see monkey do type of deal like as I like right now when I start introducing them so well I've <laughs> so seen don't, your, don't I've get seen your videos I've seen your videos Calvin it's amazing I've seen you call those dogs off of a off of a bear tree um, from across a, a, a small canyon, and and they break off of there and they come running back to you. And it seems to be a trend in the Western Houndsmen. You know, we had Ross Feenster on here, and he talked about uh, having their dogs under voice command. Larry Anderson, I hunted with him up in Swan Valley, and and every dog he had was was controllable by voice command. Uh, he didn't lead lead five dogs through waist deep snow back to the truck he just told them we're done and and pack it in and head it back so and that was even after oh yeah you know leaving leaving animals in the tree that they're looking at so that's i think we under undersell what the capabilities of these hounds are and what their trainability is so many times and it's really foreign to people in the east to think about being able to have a handle on a hound like that uh, whereas for you, it's pretty much a necessity. I've seen where you hunt and you're walking down trails on, on the edge of cliffs and different things. And you get a, a dog that's not under control or on a leash and lunges and, and you lose your balance and you're dragging yourself and maybe four or five hounds with you over the edge. If you've got them coupled up on a leash. Yeah. Um, that, that's exactly right. You know, um, I'll testify that I can control my dog. 
<laughs> I guess it came with old, older age or whatever, but I've been uh, long been a proponent of putting a handle on a on a pup at an early age, and I enjoy the fact that I can make them heal with me back to the truck, or I can call them off a tree, or call them across one of these miserable Florida swamps. So it can be done, right? Uh, but it's just great to see uh, the Western houndsmen, as as Chris has said handling their dogs in that way. And I think that goes back as long as the tradition of hound hunting has been out there uh, with some of the people I've mentioned before is that having those dogs that actually work with you instead of the other way around, it's been pretty much the um, MO of the, of the Western houndsman. And it's, I think we could learn a lot out here for sure. One of the things that's kind of pushing uh, Eastern houndsman or has pushed Eastern houndsman to try, you know, to, to work towards a better handle is that, you know, we're so heavy in competition hunting back here. You've got a time limit if it, to recover your hounds, if timeout is called. So with the, with the garments and the, the electronic training systems and stuff, you know, guys are spending a lot more time on recall because they, you pay $6,500 for a, an entry to a competition hunt. You don't want to get scratched because you can't get your hands on a dog. So some of that's starting to starting to take off, and I'm seeing more of that nowadays than what I used to. Wow. I, I, don't, I don't always think about, you know, the, the competition aspects of <laughs> hound hunting. That's, like, that's over my head. That's something that I, I don't even, you know, go We're, near because I'm just, it's it's all brand new to me. I was going to go to the one here in Arizona. They they had it just I think about three weeks ago. I was going to head over there and just to you know see what it was all about and meet other houndsmen. But I kind of got caught up with work, so I wasn't able to make it to the one here in Arizona. Calvin, but, you, yeah, Calvin, you need to, to uh, Calvin, you need to to make plans to come back east here, and I'll host you. Um, on Labor Day weekend for Autumn Oaks, it's—I mean—it's like the holy grail of hound hunting. If—if if you just would not even be able to wrap your mind around how many hounds, how many hound-related products, how many houndsmen are walking around the grounds at, at Autumn Oaks, and because it's back east, a lot of Western hunters aren't exposed to it. But uh, it's kind of like a, a pilgrimage—a pilgrimage for a houndsman to go to Autumn Oaks and see this. Uh, it's. It, to me, the first time I went to Autumn Oaks, it was like the first time I went to, to Disney World. I walked in the gates and it's like, <laughs> wow. You know, my eyes lit up. I'm all all wound up. I didn't know which way to go first. I didn't know whether to go to Space Mountain or go, you know, go to the Pirates of the Caribbean first. You know, it's the same way when I get to Autumn Oaks. Where do I go first? And you're, you know, <laughs> I mean, everybody, yeah. ev- everybody that's a major breeder and, uh, has well-established hound lines. You can learn so much from walking around the grounds and just spending a little bit of time with those people. And and Steve was uh, very involved in that program for a number of years, and he was around that business all the time. So um, just as as we are intrigued by what goes on on the Navajo Nation, and I would encourage you to come back and, and see what hound sports are like in the East, and I've got the setup for you to be here. So uh anytime you want to come back out here then you're more than welcome yeah we'll, we'll definitely have to do that i wouldn't mind going to what'd you say it was called auto Moke? 
Autumn Oaks, yep. It is the uh, holy grail of coonhound events when it comes to vendors and, and houndsmen on the grounds. Steve, how many people usually attend Autumn Oaks annually? Chris, since they don't, well, I think recently they've started uh, charging a gate to get in. In the years that I managed that, I managed it for 16 years uh, when I was with the UKC. We did not have a gate charge, so we weren't able to act, uh, accurately uh, estimate the crowd. But I would say easily uh, in the neighborhood, probably on Saturday of the event, Five to ten thousand people, uh, thousands wow. of hounds. Um, uh, it, it really is um, a gathering. It's held actually. It's Labor Day weekend each year, and uh, in Indiana, which is pretty much a central location for the coonhound uh, sport out here. And uh, while I was there, I coined a phrase, uh, the event where history is made, and they still use that. Um, and it really is uh, where many of the famous dogs down through the history of coon hunting uh, have, uh, have earned that fame. And uh, they have a, an elaborate award ceremony on Sunday morning. Uh, where the winners are are honored and presented with all kinds of awards and prizes. And I think uh, Chris and I have talked about we will probably have the Houndsman XP booth uh, at Autumn Oaks this year and be doing some live podcasting there. And, uh, man, it would be great to have you out there. You Any person that loves hounds would love Autumn Oaks, if nothing more than just look at some of the most beautiful animals you've ever seen. I would like to interview Calvin after he's been at Autumn Oaks for, for a couple hours and, and get his take on. <laughs> I can just imagine grabbing a kid off of Space Mountain the first time to Disney World and say, what do you think of that? And trying to capture that emotion because as big as you are into hounds, Calvin, I know that you would enjoy it. Um, you could fly right into Cincinnati. I could pick you up at the airport and and, uh, and just be a, an hour, hour and a half ride up there. So. You know time. what, Chris? I'm just thinking, though, the first time, and I've yet to do this, that I would walk under a lion tree with a, uh, a pack of hounds under it. I bet my eyes will be bigger than Calvin's would be when he comes to Autumn Oaks. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Steve, we oh, are... man, you did. go ahead, Calvin, finish that up. Go ahead and put I a concluder in there. Yeah, I got a couple of stories where I actually, you know, the dogs tree on another tree i got there <laughs> i got to the tree and you can see you know the scratch marks on the tree going up where the cat went up that cat bailed off onto another tree went down the tree and walked ran towards us ran towards me and went up the, went up a tree right before i got there so i got to the tree where the dogs were right and i was like what is going on you know cat was here where did it go so i did big old circles and the dogs were you know opening up and and uh, they were, they were, they were just bawling, going. And I was like, "Where's this cat at? He's around here somewhere." I stopped, looked up. Yep, no dogs were on, no dogs were near me, but that cat was sitting right above me, maybe about maybe five feet above my head. And I was like, "Um, yeah, that's not where I want to be right now." <laughs> there has been a couple of times where that 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 has happened. So, 
Yeah, it's a it's <laughs> definitely a spiritual experience when you have a you know you have a, a lion sitting sitting just out of reach, and people are always asking me when they see my pictures. They're like, "How high was that lion? And did the, does the lion ever come out?" And and uh, you know I've seen bears skin and bark down a tree right over your head. Um, and and bailing off the side of the tree seven or eight feet up and and launching straight out over the dogs and taking off again. So it's definitely a spiritual experience. There's no doubt about it. (laughs) Yeah. I'll have to tell you some stories about my dad's uh, episodes with bears, (laughs) like crawling into a culvert and poking it with a stick so it'll go out the other side. And just some things like that that he used to do to – to frighten me beyond words when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we better wrap this thing up. We're at, uh, we're over an hour and 15 minutes now. Not like we have a time limit, but uh, uh, you got any concluders, Calvin? One more time, tell us where we can find you on social media and uh, get in touch with – we want to uh, encourage our listeners to go out and make contact with Calvin and res hounds and book a hunt with you because you're hunting some outstanding i mean just amazing country out there yeah um you can find me on facebook underneath of uh res hounds is r-e-z-h-o-u-n-d-s and then on instagram the same thing res hounds but add 16 to it because that's when that's the year that i actually you know made the logo and uh started you know my uh outfitting business and uh my phone number is uh 928-785-7247 um majority of the time if i don't pick up the phone i usually answer back with text so if you want to get a hold of me pretty quick you know just text me your name number and uh any questions you may have i may not have the answer but you know i'll get back to you with some sort of you know uh answer one thing I can say, uh, you know, I can I can uh, definitely substantiate that, Calvin. I I think I talked to you the first time I was actually out hunting, and uh, you were feeding dogs at the time, and you stopped what you were doing. But the amazing thing that always impressed me about you, Calvin, was the fact that you were humble about everything, and and uh, you're always willing to help people, and your, of course your military service there. But uh, I want to share a real quick story before we wrap this up, and I think it. Uh, reflects what kind of person you are you know i talked to you about whether or not we really wanted to talk about where you hunt it seems to be taboo in the hunting world right now to share locations or or anything like that because people will come in and and hunt hunt your spots or or whatever but you may not even remember this conversation but i asked you i said are you ever worried about you know, share them where you hunt and then having a bunch of people in there hunting. And your response was, if I get beat to a spot, then I need to look at what I did that day. I need to get up earlier. I need to work harder. So that was an amazing thing that, that here we are on Navajo Nation, a sovereign nation that belongs, I say it belongs to you. And your response was, no, it belongs to everyone. Do you have any? Yeah, thoughts? that's exactly that's that's exactly right. You know, um, if you have a if you have a a hunting permit, then you're allowed to go exactly where I am. You know, your your rights are exactly the same as mine. You know, so 
you beat me to my favorite spot or the honey hole that I like to hunt, hey, by all means, have at it. And uh, tomorrow, I'll definitely probably beat you to that spot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I love that. I love that. Because back here, I mean, we're, we're mostly private property, and it just seems like, uh, you know, guys try to respect that. But, but guys will get upset if, if somebody's hunting their spots, even on national forest back here that in my eyes we all we all belong there but uh there's there's certain times when i'm worried about getting my tires slashed or my my windshield broken out because because i don't know who else hunts there and uh i just thought the way you look at that on on the navajo nation is just absolutely uh, it's outstanding i can't i can't say enough about the, the the ethics and the character that goes with that and i'm sure that has a lot to do with your your culture as a navajo uh the land belonging to all of us does that is that is that accurate yeah um pretty much if you visit almost majority of any elderly around here the first thing they'll do is invite you into their house and uh try to make you feel as comfortable as possible amazing that is that is a heritage right there calvin that's something to be treasured and something that we can all learn from and hopefully pass along to our children. Your culture is amazing. Your story is amazing. Uh, I am so pleased that Chris made the contact with you and uh, well, that we were able to have this visit today. And I am hopeful, very hopeful, that someday I'll be able to follow those res hounds and see that lion up a tree. It'll be a great uh, great day for me, for sure. Calvin, we really appreciate you being on with us today. We wish you the best of success with your guiding business. Keep up the great photography. We'll be watching Conorvore TV and and any other spots that your work's going to be appearing. And uh, we just hope that uh, you'll be able to continue this great tradition of hunting with hounds for many, many years to come. We really appreciate you, brother. Yep, I appreciate it, too. Thank you. And uh, it's been an interesting conversation. And uh, thank you guys for the opportunity to be on your podcast. You know, it's, it's been something that, you know, since I first seen it, you know, interested in and, it's not every day that you get to hear other houndsmen talk, you know, talk hounds, especially out here on the Navajo Reservation, because there's only three guides that have dogs here on the reservation, and the other two live off the reservation. So majority of the time, it's just me up in the mountains with the 10 dogs that I have. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, count- it's uh, boring talking to myself, so. <laughs> Well, Calvin, I want to echo everything Steve said, uh, having you on. And uh, we've got a, a big project in the works with 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 you. We're not going to reveal that yet, but our listeners need to stay tuned for, for some big announcements that we're working on uh, for a project with Rez Hounds and, and some other players. So we definitely want to stay tuned for that. But it's time to sign this thing off. Steve, you've got the closing – you've got the final word – Chris, as I've said many times in the words of a bear hunting friend from good old West Virginia, friend, you follow your hound and I'll follow mine.